It's time once again for another episode of Planning Successfully. Brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general information purposes only. And no information discussed during this show is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta. And now here's your host for today's episode, Matthew Theory. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of Planning Successfully. I'm your host, Matt Theory. I'm joined in studio today again by my colleague, Rhett Peden. Rhett has uh, been on the show several times, most uh, recently on our last show where we started part one of this uh, topic. And I'd like to welcome Rhett back again. Rhett and I are both shareholders at Davis Matthews and Quigley. Uh, we frequently work together on business issues. Um, well, let me, let me take a quick tangent on that for a moment because I, I want to kind of bring up a conversation I had the other day with someone, not a client. And that person said to me that they would like to engage a, a lawyer for business uh, advice, but their experience has been that having a lawyer on board brings business to a screeching halt. And uh, if, you're a biz- if you're a business owner and share that sentiment, then you're dealing with the wrong lawyer. You need to get a new lawyer. Um, I often hear people talk about how lawyers bog down their business and progress, but Rhett and I both understand that business must go on, progress must happen. And I think Rhett and I share a passion for helping businesses and clients by really getting to know their business and recognize that there's a delicate balance between providing business uh, a business and an environment that it can thrive and grow as opposed to managing risk. So there's a balance between those two things. Our, our role is not to bog down the process, but instead to help advise clients so that they can make the best business decisions with the best information uh, that's available to them. So we truly and sincerely want our clients to have businesses that succeed and grow, and we feel that we can be a meaningful contributor to that process. So I, I take a quick tangent to mention that simply because it comes up on occasion when I'm talking to folks that I haven't dealt with in the past that they have these experiences with lawyers that are negative and they think that the, the lawyers are going to hurt their business, and I'm, I'm trying to convince them and explain to them that if that's the case, then you're dealing with the wrong people. And uh, Rhett and I would sure like the opportunity to, to show you what dealing with the right people is like. So aside from my tangent and back to the topic here, uh, I wanted to uh, first introduce that my practice focuses on business law, business litigation, and fiduciary litigation. I also provide mediator and arbitrator services. Uh, Rhett, why don't you take a quick moment? I know you've introduced yourself to the audience before, but uh, give a little shout out about yourself. Well, thank you, Matt. I work um, a lot with closely held companies and professional practices and uh, general uh, outside counsel advice and also uh, work with them on buying and selling businesses, whether they're looking to uh, add business and and acquire someone else or if they're looking to exit their business, uh, whether that means uh, they're going to sell to an outside party, get it to the next generation, sell it to the management or employees, Whatever that means, I help them get the business in a place to sell and, and walk them through that transaction. Uh, but just to, to echo what you said, we're not here to put business to a halt. We're here to help facilitate deals. Now, sometimes the best thing that can happen is someone not go through with a deal if there's too many problems with it. Uh, but our, our job is not to, to bring business to a halt. It's to help advise business people to make the best decisions that they can make. Yeah, thanks, Red. I think... Uh 
you and I are completely on the same page with that. You can learn more about uh, Rat. You can learn more about me, and you can learn more about the other lawyers at, at Davis Matthews and Quigley by visiting our website, which is www.dmqlaw.com. Uh, in Rhett's description of his practice, uh, the, the buying and selling of businesses was the last thing he mentioned in detail there, and uh, that's where we're going to pick back up from uh, our last show. Um, Rhett and I were on, uh, and we were talking about uh, the do's and don'ts of selling your business, and we covered a, a variety of topics, uh, but we're going to pick back up here, and uh, you know, I think we're going to start with, I think, with what we started and finished with last time, which is uh, at one point in time, the business is either going to cease to exist or it's going to transfer ownership. The doors are going to close or you're going to sell your business. We're, we're going to talk about the, the sale, the transaction, the, the change of ownership scenario. Uh, so I, I believe it's worth repeating, but if you haven't already listened to our previous shows, I think every, every one of the previous episodes has a, has a tie into this topic and relates in a lot of ways to the process of leading up to and being involved in the sale of your business. So if you haven't done so, I, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes. You can go to uh, Davis Matthews and Quigley's website, dmqlaw.com, or you can go to planningsuccessfully.com and, and catch up on previous episodes. So the, the previous episode, uh, we talked about why do business owners sell different types of buyers, uh, confidentiality concerns, letters of intent, and we covered a lot of the issues involving due diligence, which is the opportunity for a potential buyer to look under the hood and get an idea of what's really going on. Today, we're going to talk a little more detail about the intricacies of the sale itself and the transaction. And, Rhett, I think one of the issues that you and I talk about frequently are representations and warranties. And um, if, why don't you give kind of a general overview of what representations and warranties are and then we'll go into issues like why should a seller be concerned and and additional flavors from that well representations and warranties is not a term that business people usually use in their day-to-day lives so i have a lot of people come into me and say what what does this mean that they'll get the uh the asset purchase agreement or the stock purchase agreement and the first draft of it they'll take a look at it and they'll just say they'll just throw up their hands and say I don't know what all of this means. Just put it in, in layperson speak. And what I what I tell people is representations and warranties at its most basic form is a promise. It's a promise that you are making about the business to the person who's buying the business. Uh, and so the person that's buying the business, they can do all the due diligence they want, uh, but they're never going to know that business as well as you, the owner, knows your own business. So what they're relying on you to do is to make certain promises about the business before they buy it. So after they buy the business, they'll have a chance to actually get in there and and run the business for a while. And maybe after 60, 90, 120 days, maybe there'll be a true-up after the closing. So if the purchase price is a certain amount, they get in there and see if things are are, uh, the way you told them. That's great, but if it's a little better, maybe they pay you extra money. If it's not as good as you promised, maybe you have to give some of the money back. But at its heart, the representations and warranties are that uh, that group of promises that you're making about the business. And and why is that? And why is that important? It goes beyond just trying to be truthful. But you you could try to be truthful and and be very open and make certain promises, and through no fault of your own, something may go wrong. Or uh, you may have forgotten to mention something, or they may ask you to make a promise about something you have no idea about, and then it's up to you and your attorney to say, 
am I willing to make a promise about this, or should I tell them, no, I don't want to make a promise? What's an example of that, Matt? Uh, a lot of agreements, whether they need it or not, maybe have environmental representations and warranties. Right. That's, a, that's one that comes up a lot. So you may be selling a, uh, a professional practice. You're, you're, a, you're a doctor. You're an accountant. You have no idea about environmental representations and warranties. You, you, don't, you don't dump chemicals into the water. Uh, you don't have any you know, hazardous materials or asbestos or anything like that. That's, that's not part of what you do. Uh, but when someone's coming in there to buy the business, if they ask you to make a promise about that, well, you may say, well, I don't have any liability. I'll, I'll just go ahead and make that promise. But then next year, uh, they realize that you, your your office was on top of a toxic waste dump from 20 years ago, and suddenly uh, they're looking to you to make it right. Even but, though you had no knowledge and information, they would lead you to believe that you were sitting on top of a toxic waste dump. Now you have a problem you didn't know about because you made a promise. Exactly. So you've got to be very careful about the extent that you're making promises. And so what a good attorney will come in and do is say, should we be making this promise? Can you make this promise? Do we qualify the promises that you're making? And how do we qualify those promises? For example, we may come in and say you have no actual knowledge of that environmental issue. So then if they come back and try to hold you liable in the future for that issue, you can, you can prove and show that you didn't actually know about that. Or do you say you should have known about that? Well, that's a little bit stickier because should you have known about it, was there an article in the paper about it? Did you get a letter from the government that you just put in trash can and didn't read? You should have known about it, but you didn't actually know about it. Well, those are the types of issues, the type of wording that that gets put into an agreement that's very important and that can have very uh, extensive ramifications. Uh, and and a lot of business people don't even think about it because you're you're in the business of making sales and collecting money and doing the actual work, and and you think these you know, these, these legal issues. And, and sometimes that's what people say, well, lawyers are trying to hold up a deal. That's not what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to inform the client, get them to look at the risk that are there and make an educated judgment about what they should do going forward. And those are the types of promises that we get into in talking about representations and warranties that are, that are one of the things that we spend a lot of time on every time we do a deal to make sure that we're making appropriate promises that are uh, pertain to the actual business that we're selling. And, and Red, to just take that a step further, one of the, the main reasons you're doing this, what you're spending the time looking at the reps and warranties and making sure that they're appropriate and making sure that they're properly qualified and that you have actual knowledge or you limit your, your representations based on your actual knowledge is because once these promises are made, there are ramifications. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, trying to hurry through something like this, you make a promise that you didn't know you were making or you didn't understand the promises you were making or you didn't think it was a big deal because it didn't seem to pertain to you like the environmental issue. And now all of a sudden that issue pops up six months down the road, a year down the road, and you have a buyer that's angry that has a problem that they have to deal with, and they're now looking back at their, their agreement with you, and they're seeing that you made a promise that this wasn't going to happen. So what's the natural progression here? The first, they're going to make a demand on you. And then after that, if, if you don't live up to your promise, so to speak, then you're going to end up in litigation. Well, that's right, and, and, and hopefully we can avoid that uh, but, and, and work, work through the business issues. And, but what this, what this feeds into, Matt, is 
the indemnifications right. that are in an agreement. And that's another fancy legal word that a lot of people don't understand, or they just say it's never going to come up, or I'm not going to worry about it. But uh, indemnification is something that even goes beyond just the basic claims that you might have in litigation and some of the things that, that you might uh, take on in your practice. It's a uh, because there are certain rights that people have, they're going to come up no matter what. You can waive some of these rights in the agreement or not waive these rights. But indemnification is a step further, and almost every agreement is going to have an indemnification provision. And, and, and another way that I try to explain that in layperson's terms is when you agree to indemnify someone, you are insuring them against a risk. You're basically becoming an insurance company for the buyer. So you're, not, you're, you're going beyond saying that, yes, there are certain rights that you might have that if I lie to you, you're going to be able to sue me. You're going beyond that and saying, I will cut you a check to deal with this problem. And I don't know what that amount's going to be and when it's going to come up, but I'm going to be stuck with it when it does. That's right. So you, you are agreeing to insure them contractually. And a lot of times when you agree to indemnify someone contractually, if you've agreed to indemnify them, your insurance company may not insure you for that risk because you contractually took on a risk that otherwise you would not have. So if you take on a certain risk, your insurance company may say, I'm not going to insure you against that risk because you took a step further beyond just the blanket risk that you pick up in everyday life or going through business. You, you contractually assume this indemnification risk. So now they're looking to you as the insurance company, you as the pocket of money, to make the buyer whole on anything that goes wrong on any of these representations and warranties that, for whatever reason, uh, are not true or don't hold. So you get into that issue with indemnification, and this is another area that we spend a lot of time on in almost every transaction. We try to limit the indemnification obligations. So there, there are various ways that we can do that. One of those is we try to say uh, that the indemnification is the sole and exclusive remedy. That means that they won't sue you for any other reasons under the agreement. They have to go through the indemnification process that we've negotiated in the agreement. We try to get a cap on the indemnification. That means that beyond a certain amount, you're not going to be liable for indemnification. That So if it's 10% or 50% or even 100% of the purchase price, that's that's going to be the limit to what your obligations are going to be. We try to get limits and say that there are no uh, punitive damages that you're going to be liable for for indemnification. So there are a lot of different ways that we try to negotiate limits to the indemnification obligations that someone picks up. And what I always tell clients is very important to remember. When you do a deal, it's not the headline number. It's not the number that the buyer says, I'm going to pay you X amount for your business. That's not what you're going to take home at the end of the day. The number that you need to pay attention to, and it's, it's a harder number to get at, but you need to pay attention to the number that you're going to get after taxes and at the end of the day after any indemnification risk that you have. So what is the maximum amount that in a worst-case scenario you would have to come out of pocket to pay to either taxes or give back to the buyer through a clawback under any indemnification? And that number at the end of the day, that that's left over, that's what you can take to the bank. That's what you can sleep soundly at night knowing that that's, that's the amount that you're going to get to live with. Hopefully it's going to be more than that, but I try to get clients to look at do this deal, and in the worst-case scenario, how much do you walk away with? 
And Rhett, I think one thing that needs to be mentioned here for clarification purposes is, you know, a lot of times when these folks are doing contracts in the ordinary course of business, they're doing them in a corporate name or in the form of an LLC or business, a business entity that's responsible under these contracts. But oftentimes in these sales agreements, uh, and for obvious purposes, the company many times no longer exists after the deal uh, or it exists in, in another ownership format, the the reps and warranties and the indemnification typically comes from the individuals and you're, you're exposing yourself individually to this liability and you're in, you know, you may, you may brush past this quickly, but at the end of the day, you know, you as the business owner selling are oftentimes taking on these contingent liabilities at the time of closing. And you need to be aware, completely aware of what you're agreeing to because passing through that quickly could be a landmine that blows up on you later on. That's right. And the reason for that is because uh, who's making the actual promises? Well, the business is making the promises, but the buyer is going to be looking at the owner of the business to make the promises because the owner is the person who really has the knowledge about what's happening. And at the end of the day, the consideration that the buyer is going to pay for the business is going to flow through to the owner. So the, the business may not be there a couple years down the road to pay for any indemnification claims, the business is already going to be liquidated or distribute the money out to the buyer, so the or to the seller, excuse me. So the seller is going to be the person that's going to have the actual money that the buyer paid, the seller individually. So that's where the buyer is looking to uh, basically backstop or guarantee the reps and warranties and the indemnification obligation. Uh, so again, sometimes I counsel clients, I say, you have spent a considerable amount of effort over the years to operate as a business, to clearly delineate what you're doing as an individual versus what you're doing as a business to to protect yourself. You're doing business in a corporate form or as an LLC to shield yourself from certain business liabilities. Now that you're doing this deal and you're signing up for these reps and warranties and you're personally uh, you know, putting yourself on the line for the business, would you do this deal uh, if it's going to totally wipe you out personally, if if you're signing up for some sort of unlimited obligation, if there's no cap on what you're uh, indemnifying or potentially indemnifying the buyer for, would you still do the deal? Why would you have gone to the effort to, to do business as a corporation or an LLC to protect your assets all these years? And then at the very end, when this is going to pay off all your effort and you're going to sell the business, why would you put all your personal assets at risk? So again, that goes back into trying to limit and cap the extent of the indemnifications and the reps and warranties that you as a seller are going to make to protect all the effort you've spent through the years to operate in a corporate form to protect your personal assets. Right. And it doesn't mean that you won't be giving reps and warranties. You most certainly will be giving some form of reps and warranties. It's just a matter of who, how much of the risk are you assuming as the seller versus how much risk is the buyer assuming in the transaction? And it's just a, it's just a shifting of that risk back and forth between the parties and how much is appropriate for one party versus the other party to have in their in their bucket, so to speak. That's that's exactly how I would put it, Matt. Is is it's all about allocating the risk between the parties, and at the end of the day, part of that's going to be how much leverage you have in negotiating how much the buyer wants your business, you know, how clean is your business. By that I mean how many problems are in your business and how well have you structured yourself and buttoned down things before you go to sell the business. All of that's going to play into how people negotiate from relative strength and weakness. 
to allocate risk in the transaction. But I, that's exactly how I would have put it. You are going to pick up some risk. It's unavoidable in life. You couldn't do business without assuming a certain amount of risk. But we just want to limit the amount of risk and make sure that you're aware of the amount of risk that you're agreeing to take on. Yeah, I agree, Rhett. One of the other issues I think that you know some businesses have that comes up through these, these issues uh, when you're selling a business is real estate. Uh, some businesses own real estate and some businesses lease real estate. And then, so the, the question becomes, you know, if you own the real estate and you're, and you're operating a business on the real estate, are, are the ownership of the operating company and the real estate company the same? Is it under one umbrella or do you have them separated out? And then, you know, are your documents in order? And then, you know, are you selling both? You know, is it going to be a two-step transaction? Are you going to have a real estate transaction and a sale of a business transaction? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on what the buyer wants. They may want the, the real estate or not want the real estate. Typically, they're, gonna, they're at least going to want to continue in the location at least for a little while. And that's going to depend on whether you own the real estate, like you said, or you, or you lease it. Uh, most businesses, and this is, this is good, but if they own real estate, they typically own it in a separate company. Either the owner owns it outright, the real estate, or they have an LLC that owns the real estate that leases uh, it to the business. And that's a good structure to have. You would, you would not typically want, for, for many different reasons, to have the real estate and the operating business be in the same entity. Uh, for risk purposes, you wouldn't want to subject the, the real estate to the possible obligations of the operating company and vice versa. So you segregate the assets that way. Uh, and from tax reasons, a lot since so many businesses are done uh, as, as corporations, there are certain adverse tax consequences to holding a company in an S corporate, holding real estate in an S corporation. And also uh, just the, you would not want to hold real estate really in a C corporation for, mo- for most people. So most real estate is going to be held in an LLC, and it's going to be owned by the owner of the business, or the owner is going to own the real estate outright. So when the deal gets done, it's going to have to be a separate negotiation with the owner, and that's going to be part of the consideration how much is either going to be paid in lease payments to the owner or how much are they going to actually pay and allocate to purchase the real estate separately from the owner. And that's just going to be from, from what the buyer wants to do with the business long term. Now, if you've got a lease, which is a very common situation where the where the business is being sold, leases its uh, office space, uh, that presents another issue, which goes into, is your lease assignable? And if you're going to move, are there certain termination fees that you're going to have to be looking at? And that's going to require on a case-by-case basis to actually look at the real estate contracts and see what those provisions are. And typically, if you're looking to assign a lease, uh, they're, they're, the landlord is going to want to see, you know, who is the company that's that's buying uh, your business? Do they have the financial capacity to assume the lease? Uh, is is assignment permitted, or are they going to require consent or just notice? It, it just really it, it really boils down to what are the specific provisions in the lease, and that goes back to when you initially enter into a lease. So you should be thinking about. You know, what's going to happen if you sell your business when you actually sign a lease on the first day that you rent the space? Because, uh, you know, two, three, five years down the road, you don't know what's going to happen. And the worst case scenario is that the lease is going to, the assignment of the lease is conditioned 
on you personally guaranteeing the rent going forward, even if some new company now has assumed the lease. You don't want to be in a position of the buyer uh, not paying the rent after you sell the business, and then the landlord coming back to you, the seller, and saying, hey, this new company is not paying the, the lease. Now you're supposed to pay up. It's another form of it's a backdoor way that you're indemnifying uh, or you're you're guaranteeing an obligation of the buyer. So you got to be very careful when you're entering into a lease, even if the sale of the company is not on the immediate horizon, to make sure that you're not agreeing to any really onerous conditions for any future assignment of the lease. Well, the the next two issues, Rhett, I think uh, are are pretty closely related. I mean, they they have their distinct differences for sure. But when, when you talk about trade secrets and intellectual property that's, that, that are assets of a company, you know, the trade secret being, you know, there's, there's something special that they have knowledge of that gives them an edge over their competitor that if it were disclosed, it would be harmful to the business. And, and the intellectual property could, could range in varieties of forms from copyrights, trademarks, patents, uh, y- you name it. The, the, the real thing here is, do these things have value to the company that's buying, and if they do have value to the company that's buying, are they buttoned up? Oh. And and I think that's really what what it comes down to. And buttoning these things up takes a lot of effort on the front end. It's it's a lot harder to button these things up at the time of the transaction because if people have had access to this material and use of this material for a period of time, trying to obligate them to some form of an agreement that fits the buyer's needs at this point in time makes it it's a lot more complicated than if you had taken care of it earlier on. Oh, these these things absolutely have value. And uh, it's not just our tech company clients that have, you know, great ideas uh, or people that are providing services, any any sort of uh confidential business information, anything that would give a competitor uh, a competitive advantage to know this about you, your pricing terms or or the you know the deals that you've got with the manufacturer uh, down to are your uh, key employees under contract with you and they can't leave or if they you know if they leave there there are certain restrictions. restrictions on them after they leave. All of these things are extremely important to have and unfortunately a lot of companies don't have all those buttoned up and when you go to sell, uh, the buyer's going to want to see that uh, in place. They're going to probably want to start getting some of those agreements buttoned down, which is going to delay the process of closing. And uh, a buyer would absolutely want to pay more for a business that has all of that in order, a clean business, one that, that has all the contracts buttoned up, than they would for a business that doesn't have any of that in writing. And, and these risks could come back into your to your indemnification, reps and warranties issues also if they're not buttoned up. But clearly... You know, with respect to trade secrets, for example, you know, having limited access to the information, having non-disclosure agreements with the folks that that are going to have access to the the information, those those are things that can be done before those people have access to that information to help protect that information going forward. It's 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 a very much more complex problem if you have given them the information and then ask them to sign an agreement later on. And they're suddenly going to say, "Well, why are you asking me this now?" Uh, you know. Should you pay me for this, or uh, am I going to get a raise? I mean, what was the downside if I don't sign it? It's a lot easier on the you know at the beginning when someone comes on to, to have that in their employment agreement rather than trying to go back and and, and do that after the fact because people are going to start asking questions and do I want to stay with this new buyer? Or can I go and take this somewhere else? 
uh, you're, you're really opening the door to a lot of potential issues that wouldn't be there if it was buttoned down ahead of time. And Rhett, we're running a little shy on time, so I think I'm going to skip a couple of the topics we had contemplated talking about. I'd like to go to the third-party contracts issue because I think that's another one that, that kind of relates here to having things buttoned up and, and buttoning these things up on the front end. You know, a business might have contracts with suppliers or distributors or subcontractors. Hey, let's not forget about customers. If you're in the right type of business, you may have customer contracts instead of just mm-hmm. a one-off deal here and there or, or some sort of a ongoing uh, – just relationship with them. You may have a written contract, a term contract. You know, are these contracts in place? Are they well drafted? Are they assignable? Do they expire? I mean, there are a lot of things here that if you're a buyer, you want to see because the value of what you're getting is dependent upon what you actually are getting, not what you think you're getting. Well, this this goes back into kind of our prior episode where we started talking about due diligence. Right. And we spend a lot of time in a deal going through due diligence and looking at the contracts, seeing if they're assignable, uh, seeing if the you know if they want to be continued. If if maybe the buyer wants to cancel some of those contracts, are they are they terminable? Is there a cost to terminate them? It's very much the same situation that you run into with leases. You have to look at it on a case by case basis to see what the actual contracts provide for, and that's where uh, attorneys. Uh, Unfortunately, from the client's standpoint, but it has to be done, they have to go through these contracts, look at them, and see uh, what those particular provisions are. Those are going to be disclosed during the due diligence process, and that's going to affect the value of the company. Are, are those contracts, are those relationships transferable? Does it represent recurring revenue or a recurring relationship, or is it something that could just go away uh, at any time? So that's going to affect the value of the company, and that's going to affect uh, how much due diligence that's going to have to be conducted. And it's another thing just to remember, uh, a lot of people just sign contracts left and right without thinking of them. Uh, they think, well, this isn't an important contract. But once you've uh, got a lot of those contracts and you don't know what the effect of these contracts are, it's uh, you know it's always this old saying, an ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right. It's so much easier to look at those contracts before you sign them and make sure, you know, what is the assignment provision in this contract? Is it terminable? Uh, what are what are the costs of this? Uh, you know, am I signing up for any indemnification obligations in this contract? I mean, there's so many things that a lot of times get thrown in, in boilerplate that people don't question. Right. But uh, I think there's another saying that says boilerplate can broil you. So <laughs> fair enough. Uh, you just got you got to be careful that the devil is always in the details, and and that's what uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, a client is hiring us as their attorney is to pay attention to those details that business people sometimes pass by. Uh, but uh, they're good at doing business, but not necessarily at looking at the fine print. Yeah, right. We're just about out of time. I think you and I could probably discuss this topic at length for a very very a long period of time. Um, the, the, the key here is we want you to get the most out of the hard work you've put into growing your business, uh, planning and implementing a plan, getting, getting yourself in the best position you can be at the time you're going to transition and ownership to someone else. Being proactive gives you a better chance of success. Uh, we've taken two episodes now. Like I said, we could, we've just really scratched the surface, right? I mean, you and I could go on and on about this. Um, as I said at the beginning of the show, this is an inevitability. It's either going to shut down or it's going to transition. Which, the, which of these two things occurs has a lot to do with how the owner plans and getting, and getting uh, 
going forward there. So if you're a business owner and you'd like to talk about this, Rhett and I would be happy to talk to you more about it. Um, thanks for joining us for this episode of Planning Successfully. You can learn more about DMQ and its attorneys at dmqlaw.com. You can follow DMQ on Twitter at dmqlaw. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Theory. You can reach us by telephone at 404-261-3900. Thanks again for joining us, and please join us next time for another episode of Planning Successfully. Thank you again for joining us and our guests on Planning Successfully. Use the social media links here to share today's show and stay tuned for the next episode of Planning Successfully. Brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general informational purposes only, and no information discussed during the show is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. To connect with the show sponsor, visit dmqlaw.com. And to listen to previous broadcasts, visit planningsuccessfully.com.